Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 29 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And I know that last week we finished Matthew chapter 9, but today what we're going to do is we're actually going to look back on what we've actually discussed in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 together. And the reason I do this is because whenever I'm trying to teach the Bible to other people, you got to realize that um, there's so many different ways you could do it, right? We could just be trying to get as much depth out of this as possible, but that's not what we're doing in this series. In this series, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to equip you with the tools that you need to then go back to the biblical text and get as much depth out of it as you possibly can. And so really my whole goal is not simply to teach you the text, but to teach you how the text fits together as a whole, right? And so as we start finishing different sections of the Gospel of Matthew, what I want to do is I want to zoom back out and look at the section as a whole and see how it fits into the broader scope of the whole book, right? So if you're wondering why I do that every now and then, that's why, right? It's because we're there's so much we're not covering in this series that you could cover, and I think that it's easier for y'all to go cover it on your own time if I give you the different tools and stuff that actually will help you go do that. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look back at Matthew chapters 8 and 9, which I have collectively titled The Miracles of the King. And the reason we're doing that right here is because this brings our second narrative section uh, to a close right before we go into the second discourse section. If you remember how the whole Gospel of Matthew is structured, is that up until the Passion of the Christ story, like with the death and resurrection of Jesus, Really, the way that Matthew has structured his whole gospel seems to be in a series of five narratives and discourses, right? It's like different cycles, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, where part of it is telling a story and then it'll go into some speech or prolonged teaching by Jesus. And Matthew chapters one through four was the first narrative. And then chapters five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, that was the first discourse. And then chapters eight and nine is the second set of narratives. And this was specifically focused on the miracles that Jesus performed. And that's setting up Matthew chapters 10 into the very first verse of chapter 11, where we're actually going to see another discourse section where Jesus is going to talk to his 12 apostles. And so what we're going to do here, we're just going to recap the things that we've talked about. We're going to talk about how that fits together into the whole book of Matthew. Uh, and we're just going to pave the way to get ready for the things to come in chapter 10. And so what we saw in Matthew chapters eight and nine were really uh, cycles within a cycle, right? I've talked about how the whole gospel of Matthew is a cycle of narratives and discourses, right? Five times through, but within chapters eight and nine, we have like sub cycles, right? Where we have three different cycles of miracle stories, right? And Matthew seems to frame the whole thing uh, in chapters eight and nine with three different cycles where basically he shares three miracle stories, followed by some sort of summary of Jesus' ministry at that time period, followed by a general call to discipleship uh, through different interactions that Jesus has with people, right? And that's kind of how this whole chapter, uh, the, these two chapters were actually structured, right? So you had three miracles, summary, call to discipleship. Three miracles, summary, call to discipleship. Three miracles, summary, call to discipleship. The first cycle is what I called miracles of healing, right? In the first three miracles that we saw there was Jesus heals a leper, we see him heal the centurion servant, and we see him heal Peter's mother-in-law, right? And so those are three miracles that are specifically focused on healing somebody from some sort of sickness. And what we got to see is that in those stories, Jesus is healing people that you might not expect him to heal, right? You have him healing the outcast, right? The leper, right? The person who's been excluded from the community. You have him healing the enemy, right? So you have a Roman centurion coming and asking for his servant to be healed and Jesus heals him. But then you have him also healing the needy, right? And we don't necessarily see this with just Peter's mother-in-law, but in the events that follow that in Matthew's summary 
of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, we see that everybody who was needy was being brought to Jesus. And so we see that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of healing. And he was healing people who were needy and who were just coming to him in need of healing, right? And so that's what the first cycle was about. And then we had some call to discipleship, stuff like that. The second cycle I called miracles of authority. And it's because these miracles seem to really be primarily focused on demonstrating the authority that Jesus has. If you go back to chapters five through seven with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows up guns blazing and he starts claiming these crazy things about himself and asserting that he has a whole lot of authority. Well, it's one thing to say you have authority. It's another thing to back that up, right? And so with those first three miracles, the miracles of healing, we got to see that Jesus did have power to perform miracles. But in the second cycle, Matthew really leans in and really allows Jesus to demonstrate how authoritative he truly is. And so the three miracles we see here are Jesus calming the storm, Jesus casting demons into pigs, and Jesus healing the paralytic man, right? And that last miracle, the focus is less on him actually healing the paralytic and more on him forgiving the paralytic sins, right? So whenever we looked at that last miracle, really him actually healing the man is just proving that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so when you look at those three miracles, we actually see that each one is advancing over the other one, right? The very first one is that Jesus has authority over nature, right? Because he calms a storm. And we talked about how that is really the first miracle where the disciples really begin to start realizing maybe this guy is more than just a man. Maybe he could be God in the flesh, right? I don't think they were quite there yet, but they're really confused by this because there's certain things that he's doing in that story that only God himself can do, right? And so Jesus demonstrates he has authority over nature. But then the next miracle, we see that he doesn't only have authority over the natural things, but he also has authority over the supernatural things, right? The things that are beyond nature because he talks to a demon and he casts those demons into pigs, right? And the demons themselves acknowledge Jesus' authority. And they acknowledge not only his authority in the present, but they acknowledge that one day he is going to stand over them in judgment and they're aware of this, right? And so we see that there's this escalating tension and this escalating statement of Christ's authority that Matthew is trying to layer into these healings, right? And so we have calming the storm, demons into pigs, power over nature and power over the supernatural. But then we see that Jesus has power that literally no man can have, and that is power over sin, right? He turns to a man and he says that his sins are forgiven, but Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He is not a priest. He is not offering a sacrifice to heal this man's sins. But he also doesn't say that in the name of God, your sins are forgiven. He simply tells the man, your sins are forgiven, which is a huge claim and everybody recognizes it. They recognize that Jesus is asserting to do something that only God himself can do. That's what Matthew's highlighting. And so each of these miracles in this section are highlighting Jesus' authority and then sure enough, whenever you look at the back half of that section, you have more calls to discipleship where Jesus is heightening the call to discipleship. And we get to see that he is very serious about how people should take him, which then leads us to the third set of miracle stories that we read about here. And Matthew does something interesting here because there might be three miracle stories, but he actually shares four miracles, which gives us a sum total of 10 miracles altogether. Because miracles seven and eight actually take place within the same story because we have this official's daughter, a synagogue official. Uh, she is sick, right? And the synagogue official comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I need you to heal my daughter because she is dead. And so on the way to go heal the daughter and to resurrect her, well, there's this woman with this discharge of blood who comes and touches Jesus and he heals her. And then after he heals her, he proceeds to go on to go and resurrect 
the man's daughter, right? And so we actually have two miracles snug, like just fit nice and neat together into one miracle story. And we see that Jesus is all about restoration in these stories, right? So whenever he heals the official's daughter, he's restoring her life to her. Whenever he heals the bleeding woman, he is restoring her health, right? And the interesting thing about that one is that he's not even the one taking the initiative there, right? She's the one who reaches out to touch him, right? That's really cool. And then we have uh, the miracle of the two blind men, right? Whenever Jesus is going by and the two blind men call out and say, have mercy on us, son of David, and he restores their sight. And then in miracle number 10, Jesus restores control to this man, right? Because there's a mute demoniac. He cannot speak. He doesn't have control over himself, but Jesus enables him to speak and allows him to have control over his body once again. And so whenever you look at all three of these miracle cycles together in these two chapters, we get to see a big, just a good portrait of Jesus's ministry at this time period, right? This is really Jesus at what I would suggest is approaching the height of his ministry uh, before the rejection becomes so overt that he begins to have to withdraw, right? That's going to come very shortly. But right here we see basically what Jesus was going about doing. He was healing things. He was healing people. He was healing the world. He was authoritatively teaching people and demonstrating his authority, and he was restoring creation in many ways, right? He's restoring life, restoring health, restoring sight, restoring control. In many ways, Jesus can be viewed as this, he's almost like a, a traveling Garden of Eden, right? He's planting little pockets of Eden everywhere he goes, which is fitting because as we're going to talk about, the time period, uh, like one thing we'll talk about again a little bit later uh, in this lesson is how Matthew has been framing this entire story of Jesus uh, in parallel with the history of the people of Israel, right? And there's clear parallels that Matthew is alluding to um, just to kind of portray Jesus as the Israel that succeeded where the former Israel failed, right? He is the true Israel. That's who Jesus is. And at the time period in Israel's history that we're dealing with at this section of the Gospel of Matthew, it kind of roughly corresponds to the wilderness wandering years, right? And so if Jesus is like a portable Garden of Eden, in many ways you could almost view him as a tabernacle, right? He's going around and everywhere he's going, the presence of God is with him, right? Because he is God in the flesh and he is demonstrating God's power everywhere he goes. He is almost like a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire guiding the people through the wilderness of life. He's healing people, he's teaching with authority, and he is restoring life everywhere he goes. Also in this section, in chapters 8 and 9, uh, another thing that Matthew does is he begins to let us see how people respond to Jesus, right? So in those first three miracles, in the first cycle, the cycle of healing, Matthew actually doesn't share any people's responses, right? Because he really wants us to be focused on Jesus' power, right? Because you have the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says he has all this authority. Well, whenever you get to these first set of miracles, Matthew wants to demonstrate that Jesus does have the authority. He can back off the, he can back up the things he's been claiming. And so the first three miracles, we don't see any responses, but then you get to the second three sets of miracles. And now that we're used to seeing Jesus' miracles at play, and now as we're getting more focused on Jesus' authority, Matthew wants us to see how people respond to that authority. And so whenever Jesus calms the storm, we see that the disciples are marveling at Jesus, right? But then whenever he goes and casts the demons into pigs, we see that the people in that city actually ask him to leave. And then whenever he heals the paralytic, the crowds fear him and glorify God. But meanwhile, the religious leaders are not responding very positively. And so what we see here in the second set of things is that 
it seems to be a mixed bag, right? You've got some people like the disciples and like the crowds who are responding to Jesus positively. But then you have other people like the Gentiles who were upset about their pigs or like the religious leaders who are not responding favorably to Jesus, right? Whereas presumably in the first one, everybody responded favorably. That's why there's no responses listed, right? Jesus healed the leper and the leper obeyed. Jesus healed the centurion's servant and he marveled at the man's faith, right? Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and she gets up and begins to serve him, right? And so in those first three miracles that we see, the responses were most likely positive, hence why Matthew doesn't really focus on them, right? They're kind of briefly mentioned, but then just moves on. Whereas the second three miracles, we begin to see that there's a mixed response. The disciples and the crowds are responding positively, but other people, not so much. And this expands even further when you get to the final four miracles, the final three miracle stories, uh, that final section, the miracles of restoration. Because as Jesus goes about and he is restoring creation and he's restoring Eden in many ways, we get to see that a lot of people don't actually want him to do this, right? Uh, or we just get to see at very best that maybe people's responses to him aren't as good as they should be, right? Because whenever he feels the he heals the official's daughter, he tells people not to share this, but the news spreads anyways, right? Whenever he heals the blind men, news spreads anyways, right? Actually, I believe it's when he's talking to the two blind men that he explicitly tells them not to tell anybody. Um, I think that with the official's daughter, he might tell that to them in another gospel. I don't I don't have it pulled up with me right now. I don't think that he said that to them here in the gospel of Matthew, but we talked about that last week, so you can go look at that if you want. Um, but Jesus tells people not to spread the news, yet they do it anyways. And really, I'm not suggesting that this is supposed to be a negative thing. I think it's more of a neutral thing because obviously the news is going to spread either way. Whenever a woman gets brought back to life and whenever two blind men can now walk around fully seeing, that news is going to spread. But Matthew's highlighting that this happens in direct opposition to what Jesus had said. So whether or not these people are guilty of spreading the news or if Matthew's just highlighting that it happened either way, all we can say is that this isn't really a good or bad thing. It is just a fact of the matter, right? Jesus wanted the news to stay kind of contained, but it spread. And so he's gaining popularity. But since he's gaining popularity, we also see him gaining opposition as well, right? Which leads us to that final miracle whenever Jesus heals the mute demoniac. And we actually have the Pharisees accusing him of performing these miracles uh, in the, according to the power of demons, right? They accuse him of demonism. Uh, and so what Matthew is really highlighting here is that as Jesus grows more popular and as Jesus' ministry becomes more public, there's some people who really appreciate him, but the opposition is also growing more and more and more. And so if you look at those three cycles, the first one doesn't focus on any, doesn't focus on any responses, and that's probably because most of the responses were positive. You go into the middle one, the miracles of authority, and you see some good responses and some bad responses. And then you get to the final ones, the miracles of restoration, and you see at best neutral responses at first, leading to a bold accusation where they are just outright accusing Jesus of working on the power, uh, working according to the power of demons, right? Which is not good, right? And so there's this advancement that as Jesus grows more popular, the opposition against him becomes even stronger. If we're looking at the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, uh, Jesus is like Moses with all the people grumbling against him. Right? And so that's where we're at in this story thus far, which then leads me uh, to talking about something that I've already kind of mentioned a few times in this video and something that we've been tracking so far throughout the whole series of Matthew, uh, Jesus as Israel. Right, This is something that 
Um, you're not really going to notice a whole lot unless you actually have just spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament. Um, but the way that Matthew shared, like, the way that Matthew frames Jesus' story very closely parallels the story of the people of Israel, right? And you don't have to notice these things in order to understand the overall thrust of Matthew's gospel, right? You can literally just read it from beginning to end and understand the story. But if you understand the clear references that Matthew is putting here and the way that he is framing Jesus' story and the the order of events and like the way that he's choosing to tell it, because obviously Matthew has um, demonstrated and, and other gospels demonstrate that the authors of the gospel are not strictly telling this story in a chronological manner as we might expect from most biographies nowadays, right? The authors are specifically telling Jesus' story in a factual manner. Yes, it is true stuff, but they're framing it in a way to communicate their own agenda, right? Matthew wants to communicate to a Jewish audience that Jesus is king and that Jesus is worthy of that title, right? And so what he's doing is he is framing Jesus' story in such a way to parallel the history of the people of Israel so that when a Jewish person is reading this, they realize how Jesus succeeded where Israel failed, right? And so in many ways, the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is the story of the Old Testament. And we've seen this in Matthew chapters 1 through 7. Just to recap it, it start, uh, both Genesis and the Gospel of Matthew start with a, quote, book of the genealogy, which begins, quote, in the beginning, right? And then it immediately goes into a miraculous virgin birth initiated by the Spirit of God, right? In the book of Genesis, we're talking about Adam, who was born um, just of the dust of the ground, and the Spirit of God breathes life into him. In Jesus, he is born of a virgin by the Spirit of God, all right? And then we go into a miraculous blessing child promised by God to unlikely parents, right? In the book of Genesis, we have Isaac being promised to Abraham, but then in the book of Matthew, we have Jesus being promised to Mary and Joseph, right? Uh, and really, we have Abraham and Sarah being at the opposite end of Mary and Joseph, right? Mary and Joseph are a young couple who has never even had sexual relationships, whereas Abraham and Sarah are an elderly couple, uh, much more akin to really Zechariah and Elizabeth from the Gospel of Luke, uh, John the Baptist's parents. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, they're an elderly couple who are barren, right? And so there's these parallels, right? A miraculous child who will bring blessings to the world promised by God to unlikely parents. Then we go into a story of a dreamer named Joseph appointed to deliver his family from death, right? This is the end of the book of Genesis, right? Genesis ends with Joseph, the uh, the great-grandson of Abraham. Well, he is a person who interprets dreams, and he ultimately goes through a lot of suffering in order to ultimately save his family from death, and in order to preserve the tribe of Judah in particular, if you go read the book of Genesis, right? Well, in the same way, Whenever you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, this is what we read in the Nativity story. Matthew doesn't focus on Mary in the same way that the Gospel of Luke does. Matthew focuses instead on Joseph, and he focuses specifically on Joseph and his dreams, and on how Joseph's dreams communicated him to go and save his family. And then, uh, if you go into the book of Exodus, you have a baby-killing tyrant who tries to annihilate God's chosen seed, right? You have Pharaoh trying to kill the children of Israel. All right, well, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, that's exactly what King Herod does. A baby-killing tyrant trying to annihilate God's chosen seed. King Herod tries to kill Jesus. All right, going back to Exodus, the deliverer is called from Egypt until the death of the king. All right, well, Moses, he is the one who's going to deliver the people out of Egypt. He is called to leave Egypt. and Well, he isn't really called to leave Egypt, but he does leave Egypt. <laughs> um, and he stays in the land of Midian until after Pharaoh dies. In the same way, 
Joseph and Jesus and Mary, they leave Israel, the new Egypt, and they escape to the land of Egypt until Herod the Great dies. All right? Well, then the deliverer returns to Egypt to deliver the people. Right? Moses came back from Midian into the land of Egypt to deliver the people out of bondage. And in the same way, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they return into the land of Israel and they go, land, uh, they go dwell in the land of Nazareth. Right? You also have a prophet condemning hard-hearted religious leaders for enslaving God's people. Right? That's what Moses and Aaron do whenever they show up to Pharaoh. Right? They call him out on his hard-heartedness and they basically start rebuking him for all the things he's been doing. That's what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist shows up and he is rebuking them for all the things they've done. Then you have Israel passing through the waters to escape Egypt. After all these amazing plagues, the people of Israel are freed from their bondage and they go through the Red Sea and they escape into the wilderness. Well, Jesus shows up to John the Baptist and he passes through the waters of the Jordan River and he escapes Israel, which once again, Israel is the new Egypt in this story because Egypt, uh, basically Israel at the time of Jesus had enslaved itself because of uh, really the teachings of the Pharisees and stuff like that right? Well, Jesus passes through the Jordan River and he escapes into the wilderness. Whenever Israel entered the wilderness, they were there for a time of testing. And, and that's the same thing that's true for Jesus, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. But where Israel failed the test, Jesus passed. And then whenever the people of Israel uh, got through some of their tests, they arrived at Mount Sinai where God's kingdom was announced, accompanied by miraculous signs, and God made a covenant with his people. In the same way, um, whenever Jesus got back from his wilderness um, wanderings and whenever he was tested, he went to the land of Galilee where he began to announce the kingdom of God and he called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Starting in Exodus chapter 20, going through the book of Leviticus and all the way through about halfway through Numbers, the people of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai and that is where they're receiving the law from God. Well, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he begins to interpret the law of God and he claims to speak with authority, right? And the things that he's, where does he start in the Sermon on the Mount? He starts with the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, this, this, like, like he starts going through the Ten Commandments, not all of them, but some of them, right? And so what we see here is that Matthew has intentionally framed the story of Jesus to parallel the story of the people of Israel. Which leads to the question, in chapters 8 and 9, what did those parallel? And there's really two theories here, uh, whenever you just look at what other scholars have said. Um, some people will suggest that the ten miracles that Matthew shares here are supposed to parallel the ten plagues of Egypt that we saw during the Exodus event. Because if you notice in the previous, um, like, like in the table that I was just talking about, right? We skipped over the actual Exodus story, right? We went straight from Moses and Aaron rebuking Pharaoh to them passing through the waters, Right? So you might wonder, well, where were the ten plagues? Well, it could be that Matthew saved that for here. But then, if you go into the book of Exodus and also the book of Numbers, you'll also see that God rebukes the people of Israel for the ten times they tested him in the wilderness. And so, some people would suggest that maybe that is what Matthew's trying to parallel. And I would actually argue that maybe it's both of them. Right? Because if it's actually both of them, it would make sense why Matthew would choose to save it for right here. Because... He saved the ten plagues, like, like he skipped over that part, and he included it right here because this is right where the ten tests in the wilderness would fall, right? Uh, and it could be that maybe he's picking one or the other. I really don't know. Uh, and I'm not going to suggest that the ten miracles have a direct parallel with the other ones. There are some people who have tried to make those parallels. You can go look that up if you want to. I think that was a little bit of a stretch. I think that the numerical parallel is really the only thing we need to focus on here, right? So with the ten plagues in Egypt, 
You have the water being turned to blood. You have the frogs on the land. You have the gnats on the land. You have the flies on the land. You have the pestilence and all the animals, the livestock being destroyed. You have the boils on the people's bodies. You have the hail uh, falling from the sky. You have the locusts devouring the land. You have the darkness in the land. And then you have the death of the firstborn. Right? Those are the ten, mir uh, the ten plagues that we saw fall upon the people of Egypt, leading to the people of Israel being freed at long last. And those plagues serve to show God's glory and his authority over the other gods and also to demonstrate Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Well, you definitely see those parallels here because Jesus is demonstrating his glory and his authority and he's demonstrating the hardness of heart of the religious leaders who are the metaphorical pharaohs of the current um, Israel, right? Uh, where Israel is the new Egypt, right? Then you have the 10 tests in the wilderness, uh, which you'll notice is a lot of grumbling, right? Uh, as soon as the people get to the Red Sea, they start grumbling against Moses. As soon as they get to the other side of the Red Sea and they realize that they don't have any food, they don't have any water, they begin to grumble again. And so you have grumbling at the Red Sea, grumbling at Mara, grumbling in the desert of Sin. Uh, whenever God actually starts to give them food from the sky, right? He gives them manna. Uh, well, you have one point where they gather too much, right? He tells them to only gather a certain amount. They gather too much. And then he tells them not to gather manna on the Sabbath, uh, but they do it anyways, right? And so they're testing God. They grumble at Rephidim. There's the whole golden calf debacle where they make another God and try to worship it. And they have the audacity to call him by the name of God. They grumble at Tabra. They grumble over food. And then ultimately it culminates in them trusting the spies' bad report. Whenever Moses sends the 12 spies into the land of Canaan and the people come and the spies come back and only Caleb and Joshua are the ones saying, yes, we should trust God. Well, everybody else decides to trust the spies' bad report that they cannot conquer the land of Canaan. And it's in Numbers chapter 14 where God rebukes them and says, you have tested me these 10 times in the wilderness. And as a result... You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Well, that parallel would make sense as well, right? Because I already mentioned how Jesus kind of, like he's going around planting little pockets of Eden everywhere he goes. He almost is a metaphorical tabernacle wandering through the wilderness. And as these miracles continue, Matthew begins to highlight more and more people grumbling against Jesus, which ultimately is going to lead to Jesus basically sentencing them to a period of exile and wandering, right? Uh, because ultimately the people of Israel are going to reject Jesus and he's going to go off to the Gentiles. And so there could be parallels with those, right? There's the 10 plagues in Egypt, the 10 tests in the wilderness, and that would ultimately be paralleled by the 10 miracle stories that Matthew shares there, which would also explain why Matthew wanted to share 10 miracles, despite the fact that he definitely had a cycle of 333, right? So it kind of makes sense why he would snake two miracles into one story, because he's really wanting that numerical value. And if you know anything about Jewish people and how Jewish writers write, um, numerical values are super duper important to them. Some people read too much into them, but they're definitely worth looking into. Uh, and so in Matthew chapters eight and nine, if the parallel is with the 10 plagues, then what ultimately is be being communicated is that Jesus is the greater Moses bringing miracles of revival rather than miracles of destruction and delivering Israel from Egypt, the Israel from the Egypt that Israel has become. What I mean by that is that uh, whenever you look at the 10 plagues in Egypt, all those plagues were focused on destroying Egypt, right? Whereas if, e if Israel is the new Egypt, right? And if Jesus is going into the new Egypt and performing these plagues, they're actually not plagues at all, but they're actually miracles of revival, right? Where rather than destroying Egypt, Jesus is actually going and he's healing it and he's restoring it and he's demonstrating his authority to make things better, right? So it's actually reversal of the Exodus story. Rather than him condemning Egypt to destruction, he's actually trying to revive it, right? That's what he's trying to do. 
Uh, and what he's doing here is he's ultimately delivering Israel from the Egypt Israel's become because we're going to see that yes, Jesus is ministering to the people of Israel, but not Israel, not all Israel belongs to Israel, as Paul will say in the book of Romans, right? Uh, ultimately, there's going to be a, fa a fraction of the people, uh, a small faction that eventually follows Jesus, right? And that's going to be the disciples and stuff like that, right? These people are going to choose to follow Jesus, and there's going to be a restored Israel within Israel. Uh, and the other people of Israel, they are going to be really, um, it, for them, since they're not responding to the miracles properly, um, they will be kind of destroyed by it. Right. However, if the parallels with the ten rebellions, then Jesus is the greater Israel who comes into the wilderness of this world and teaches Israel to trust God, not to test him. Right. The whole reason why the people of Israel were sentenced to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is because they tested God rather than trust him. Well, Jesus is going into this and he's performing all these miracles. And I don't think it should surprise us that Matthew includes all these calls to discipleship in her like interweave throughout these miracle stories because he's trying to teach people not to test God, but to trust him. And sure enough, whenever you go back to Jesus in the wilderness, uh, whenever he was being tempted by Satan, that was one thing he was emphasizing. Man shall not test the Lord as God, right? That's not what he should do, right? He should trust him, right? That's really a, pre a prevailing theme. Like if you actually just look at the gospel of Matthew as a whole, you'll start noticing these themes popping out, right? It's not about testing God. It's about trusting him. It's about being a disciple. It's about learning to follow him and understand that hardship might be part of the package, right? That's really what's being communicated here. However, the issue is we do see that people are still beginning to test Jesus, right? Whenever you see the religious leaders, how are they responding to Jesus? They're testing him, right? They're accusing him of being a demoniac and stuff like that. And so really, I think there might be both of these, right? I think that Jesus is the greater Moses and the greater Israel. And I think that Matthew's actually trying to communicate both of those. And I think that's why he waits to share the miracles here rather than sharing it a little bit earlier on before Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. I think that it was very intentional that Matthew did this. Uh, and I, I just think it's really cool. I think the more I study the Gospel of Matthew, the more impressed I am by just Matthew's rhetorical strategies. That leads us into Matthew chapter 10 then, right? Because starting next week, we're going to go into Matthew chapter 10. And given where we've been at, uh, ultimately what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to send his 12 apostles on a mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The way that Matthew chapter 9 ended was with Jesus looking out and saying that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, right? The idea is that there's a lot of work that needs to be done, yet there's not enough people to go out and do it because Israel has enslaved themselves and become the new Egypt, right? But there are people who need to be freed, right? This is really, it's almost like the burning bush moment, right? Where uh, at the end of Exodus chapter two, you have that amazing moment where it says that the people of Israel cried out to God and their cries lifted up into his ears and he heard them and he knew. And then you go to chapter three and what does God do? He goes and calls Moses, right? And he says, Moses, I have a job for you. Well, Jesus is like that right now, right? He hears the cries of the people of Israel coming up to him, and he knows that people need to be sent out to go and help them. And so going into chapter 10, Jesus is going to call the 12 apostles, right? And there's a lot of parallels to this, right? Uh, this fits perfectly into right where we're at in the overall story of the people of Israel. Because if you remember Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that really encapsulated the entire law, right? The entire Torah, which is primarily Exodus 20 through Numbers 10, but really Genesis through Deuteronomy altogether, 
right? And so by the time you get to the end of chapter seven, you've kind of concluded the whole Torah section and those miracles that we talked about really fit in somewhere in there, right? So you had um, either the 10 plagues or the 10 tests in the wilderness, all of which are found in the law, right? So Matthew chapter 10, fittingly, also fits in that same category, right? We're still wrapping up the law here. And there's a lot of parallels, right? Jesus is going to send his 12 apostles on a mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, the number 12 is no accident, right? Jesus knows what he's doing whenever he appoints 12 apostles. This is very similar to Moses sending the 12 spies to check out the promised land. Remember, that was in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 14 is where the people did not believe in God, and therefore they were sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness. All right, well, how people respond to these 12 apostles is going to dictate whether or not Jesus is going to be with them or whether or not they're going to be rejected, right? That's going to be a big aspect of this. But it's also like Moses commissioning the 12 tribes to go into the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy, right? He's sending them into the land where they will be blessed by God if they are faithful to him, right? But then it's also like Joshua leading the 12 tribes into the promised land during the book of Joshua, Right, And so I think that this moment right here, uh, really what we're going to see in chapter 10, this is spanning the gap and it's really bridging that moment going from the Torah into what we would call the books of history, right? Uh, or what the Jewish people would call the early prophets, right? That's really where we're at right now in the story of the people of Israel. And I'm excited to talk about that with y'all. And so just to basically look at this really big picture again, uh, we've got those five sections of narratives and discourses, right? The first cycle is chapters one through seven. The second cycle is chapters eight through 10, more or less. Uh, the third cycle is chapters 11 through 13. The fourth cycle is chapters 14 through 18. And the fifth cycle is chapters 19 through 25. And then with chapters 26 through 28, we actually get the, um, the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? So that's where we're at. Uh, we are currently in that second cycle. I know that we're like 29 videos into the series and it seems like it's dragging on a whole long, like a really long time. Hang in there with me. We're going to get through this eventually. Um, there's, there's just so much that we have to cover, right? Because there's so much to talk about in the Gospel of Matthew. And like I said at the beginning of this whole lesson, we're not even covering, we're not even really getting into the depths. We are simply going, like taking a cursory overlook at all of this uh, so that you hopefully um, in the days in between these lessons can go even deeper. And so where we're currently at, we talked about the miracles of the king in chapters eight and nine. Starting next week, we're going to go into the mission of the king, which is really Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is going to appoint the 12 apostles. He's going to instruct the 12 apostles what they're going to do. And he's going to give them an extended warning in regards to the mission that he's going to send them on. I hope y'all are as excited for that as I am. Until next time, my name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. And of course, remember who you are. Maranatha. You read a verse, you sing a hymn, the money's in the plate. Sundays you mark out for him, but even then you show up late. You bought the shirt, you wear the cross, but sin throughout the week. Thirty shekels and a noose, you kiss him on the cheek.